The damsel in distress stands atop a construction site made of crooked girders and ladders. The hero, a carpenter, later a plumber, must rescue her as a speech bubble above her head screams help. In his way is the villain, a primate who hurls barrels and oil drums, forcing the carpenter to jump over them in his perilous journey to save her. I'm Jamie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast about a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consumed, and connected. On today's dizzying journey, we travel to Japan to find out how one entertainment system revitalized the video game industry and became the best-selling console of its time. This is the story of the NES. The story of Nintendo is a story of the 80s, the 1880s to be exact, and I'm about to cover a hundred years of innovation in a very short amount of time. Strap in, and here we go. Founded by Fusajiro Yamauchi in September 1889, Nintendo Kopai, as it was originally called, was a Japanese trading card company in Kyoto. The name Nintendo is commonly assumed to mean leave luck to heaven. But the assumption lacks historical validation. However, it can alternatively be translated as the Temple of Free Hanafuda. Hanafuda, meaning flower cards, were trading cards that allowed for multiple games. They became popular after Japan banned most forms of gambling in 1882, though Hanafuda were still allowed. Yamauchi retired from the company in 1929. His son-in-law took over the business and the company changed names to Nintendo Yamauchi Limited. The company grew and expanded, survived World War II, and by 1953, they became the first company in Japan to make cards out of plastic. Previously, cards were printed on bark. Then, in 1959, Nintendo made a deal with Disney to print characters on the Nintendo trading cards. The tie-in was an enormous success, with Nintendo selling 600,000 packs in one year. By 1963, the company became a public company and changed its name to Nintendo. The company then diversified and started investing in research and development into several new business lines that were mostly a failure, yet games were always central to Nintendo. This led to a watershed moment in the early 1970s when they released Japan's first electronic toy, the Nintendo Beam Gun. In total, more than a million units were sold, and Nintendo partnered with Magnavox in 1971 to provide a light gun controller based on the beam gun design for the company's new home video game console, the Magnavox Odyssey. You might remember the beam gun well as it became the most iconic Nintendo accessory when paired with Duck Hunt a few years later. Now we're getting closer to the Nintendo you know and love, but we're not there yet. Motivated by the successes of Atari and Magnavox, Nintendo acquired the Japanese distribution rights for the Magnavox Odyssey in 1974 and reached an agreement with Mitsubishi Electric to develop similar products between 1975 and 1978. Then, two major events happened in 1979. Nintendo's American subsidiary opened in New York City and a new department focused on arcade game development was created. Then, in 1980, Look at us, we made it. Nintendo created one of the first handheld video game systems, the Game & Watch, from the technology used in portable calculators. 
it became one of Nintendo's most successful products with over 43.4 million units sold worldwide during its production period and for which 59 games were made in total. And I've done an episode all about how important the Game & Watch really was if you want to go back into my earlier episodes. Now that we're firmly in the 1980s, let's talk NES. But before I do, I got to take one more small detour. Because we can't talk NES without talking about the video game crash of 1983. Known as the Atari shock in Japan, the crash was a large-scale recession in the video game industry that occurred from 1983 to 1985, and mostly in the US. Market saturation of consoles, poor quality games, and competition from personal computers caused home video game revenues, which had peaked at around $3.2 billion in 1983, to drop to $100 by 1985. Many people blame the crash on the infamous E.T. Atari video game. You may be familiar with this, but if you're not, here's a quick recap. When the E.T. movie became a hit, the studio rushed to put out a video game for it. Howard Scott Warshaw was the person tasked with creating the game. He previously created the very popular Yars Revenge. He even made the very first video game based on a movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. The very popular Raiders game took him 10 months to make an extremely quick turnaround for a video game. So, if you don't have a video game out in time for Christmas, you're in big trouble. And Paramount Studios, Steven Spielberg, and Atari were negotiating over money for months. This gave Warshaw only five weeks to make the game if they were to capitalize on the holiday season. Warshaw essentially worked 24 hours a day to not only create the game, but make it unique at the same time. Instead of a simple board game where you stay on the same screen like Pac-Man, E.T. would have multiple worlds to move between. Somehow, the game was completed and came out in time for Christmas. And the hype for this thing was through the roof. Until kids began to play it. Now, if you ever played this thing, you know it was not good. It was not good at all. The objective of the game was not clear, and the gameplay was extremely frustrating as you would fall down a hole, be placed back in a new position, only to fall down it again. My neighbor had this game, and I just remember the feeling of utter disappointment. To call it frustrating is a massive understatement. My neighbor, who loved everything, even admitted this game sucked. And similar sentiments were happening all over North America. But because of the hype over this game and one of the most beloved Christmas commercials ever, Atari sold 1.5 million copies, but they manufactured 4 million. Again, if this is new to you, a famous story emerged of Atari burying the unused cartridges in a landfill in New Mexico. Many see the E.T. Atari video game as being the straw that broke the camel's back, leading to the great video game crack. Is it entirely responsible? Of course not. But it was another example of the slipping quality and lack of trust customers now had. Is it the worst game of all time? I wouldn't go that far. At the very least, it may be one of the most disappointing games ever. And none of this was Warshaw's fault. The fact he created what he did in only five weeks is astonishing. But no matter how you look at it, 
the damage was already done. It brought about the end of the golden age of arcade games and led to the bankruptcy of several companies producing home computers and consoles. The shock was so severe that analysts expressed doubts about the long-term viability of video game consoles and software. That is, until the Nintendo Entertainment System, that's right, the NES, was released. And so, we have arrived at our destination. Originally released in Japan a few years earlier in July 1983 as the Famicom, short for Family Computer, it was Nintendo's first attempt at a cartridge-based console and was planned to be a 16-bit system with full computer function, including a keyboard and a floppy disk. The cartridges were supposed to be the size of a cassette tape, but ultimately they ended up being twice as big. Careful design attention was paid to the cartridge connectors because loose and faulty connections often plagued arcade machines, so Nintendo decided to produce its own connectors. They could withstand the memory and expansion needs of its game, and the controller designs were reused from the Game & Watch machines. And so Famicom was released in Japan with Popeye, Donkey Kong, and Donkey Kong Jr. And by the end of 1984, it was the best-selling console in the country. This allowed Nintendo to set its sights on a new target, America. Legend has it that Nintendo was going to partner with Atari to release the Famicom as the Nintendo Advanced Video Gaming System. And everything looked good until a slight hiccup at the 1983 Consumer Electronics Show. The deal was supposed to be finalized in Vegas until Atari discovered that its competitor, Coleco, was illegally demonstrating its newest console with a Donkey Kong. This was in violation of Atari's exclusive license with Nintendo to publish the game with its own system. And so the deal went belly up and Nintendo forged ahead on its own. And then came the 1983 crash in the US. Meanwhile, Nintendo was doing really well in Japan with the Famicom by the end of 1984, and as the new year rolled into view, the company returned to Las Vegas. This time with a new design and an easier-to-use cartridge slot, all done to avoid the missteps caused by the crash and the stigma associated with video games. Nintendo leaned on the popularity of VCRs, and so the new console had a front-loading system that was completely unique. The 8-bit video game system was rebranded as the NES in 1985, released in select locations in October 1985, and followed with a full-on nationwide release in February 1986. At the start, 17 games were available for play, including Duck Hunt, Wild Gunman, I'm a crack shot at this, and of course, Super Mario Bros. The key for the company was making sure that customers were satisfied and confident in Nintendo. Anyone could make a video game for the Atari, and a lot of crap flooded the market. The artwork on the packaging and the cartridges made the games look like you were about to play an actual movie. But then you went to play, the games were often garbage. There was no quality control. Nintendo, instead, made sure the packaging and artwork match gameplay. It was a real what-you-see-is-what-you-get situation, and it was a smart one, because before you even put in the cartridge, you knew what the graphics were going to look like on those first 17 NES games. And they looked pretty good. It was clear not only was their technology better, 
but they were also consistent, and that made the Nintendo difference. And the Nintendo Entertainment System made its way to stores. The key was all about branding. Gone were the terms control deck and video games. Now it was all about consoles and game packs. To ensure the quality of the games, the NES would have the revolutionary 10 NES lockout chip. This meant there would be no copying or knockoffs allowed for the new console. With its target on America, Nintendo capitalized on the already developed taste for video games. This meant they needed a strict policy to censor any profanity, sexual, religious, or political comments. Nintendo wanted to make something very clear. This was high-quality, innovative technology, and anything before it was primitive and crude. The big foray into making this known was with the Robotic Operating Buddy, or ROB. Do you remember this at all? I remember being blown away by it when seeing it in the commercials as a nine-year-old. My neighbors down the street were the first people I knew who had it, and it was pretty awesome. Rob was a way to show how advanced the technology was, but also incorporated in a toy, making the NES feel as close to the toy market as it was to the video game market. Another brilliant strategy. And you've guessed it, I have an episode that goes much deeper into the story of the Nintendo Rob if you want to go back into the earlier episodes. Regardless, when the NES came out, it was available in four different bundles. The deluxe set contained the control deck, Rob, the light gun called the Zapper, two controllers, and Duck Hunt and Gyromite. The action set came with the control deck, Zapper gun, two controllers, and Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt. The power set came with the console, two controllers, the Zapper gun, the power pad, remember running on that thing? and three games, Mario, Duck Hunt, and World Class Track Meet. The basic set, either $89.99 for just the console or $99.99 for the console and Mario Brothers. The action set was probably the most popular at $149.99, which today is the equivalent of around $313. The high-end deluxe set was a steep piece of change, originally retailing for $179.99, which would be about $450 today. Yikes! The largest retailer at first was Sears, as in 1986, they included the NES in their beloved Christmas catalog. If you want the ultimate nostalgia trip, you can head to wishbookweb.com where you can actually flip through the pages of every Sears wishbook going all the way back to 1937. You can journey back in time and see the first NES and other beloved toys through the years you grew up, but be prepared to get hit right in the feels. The second biggest supplier of the NES was Kmart. And I have an earlier episode all about the rise and fall of Kmart if you want to go back and check that out. But despite the sticker shock, it did not deter customers. When you get hold of the Nintendo Entertainment System, when you master Rob the Video Robot and meet the challenge of Gyromite, when you shoot the light-sensing zapper, when you play the system with the most arcade hits, you're playing with power. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Now you're playing with power. And Nintendo sold a lot of systems. 
1986, Nintendo sold 1.1 million units. It's been said that if more inventory was available, this could have risen to 1.4 or 1.5 million units. Retailers clamored to get any Nintendo products possible as systems, controllers, and games were flying off the shelves. I mentioned that in 1985, in North America, the video game industry only generated $100 million in sales. In 1986, that number rose to $430 million, and $310 million of that came from Nintendo. But this was a worldwide thing, too. In Japan, they sold a staggering 6.2 million units. Nintendo's strategy worked. The NES Rob helped drive interest in a new era of video games, and the uniqueness of Duck Hunt and the joy of playing Mario is what made people realize how incredible video games could really be. Once you played an NES, you were hooked. By 1988, the NES had transformed the video game industry. It was so popular that the market for Nintendo cartridges was bigger than for all home computer software. 7 million systems were sold, which was almost as many Commodore 64s that were sold over a five-year span. Nintendo crushed other video game systems, and by the end of the 80s, 30% of homes would have an NES. Nintendo crushed other video game systems, outselling Sega and Atari by a wide margin to become the dominant system of the 1980s. By the end of the decade, 30% of homes would have an NES. In three years, the NES had outsold all previously released consoles worldwide. The Legend of Zelda would be the first standalone game, not sold in a bundle, to sell over 1 million copies. Between bundle and individual sales, Super Mario Bros. sold over 40 million units. When Super Mario Bros. 3 was released in 1988, sneakily marketed through the movie The Wizard, it quickly sold 7 million copies in North America and 4 million in Japan. At the time, Mario 3 quickly became the fastest and best-selling video game in history. Sales for just this one game grossed over a half billion dollars, or 1.2 billion if adjusted for today. Video games were not going away anytime soon. It's crazy to think that what had started out as a trading card company almost 100 years earlier had now revolutionized the video game industry. Nintendo meant video games. And as a new decade approached, it faced challenges with the advent of 16-bit systems, particularly the Sega Genesis. But Nintendo would not be left behind. But that's a story for another podcast, maybe one about the 90s. Check out History of the 90s wherever you get your favorite podcasts. There's not much more to be said about the NES. It was part of my, and I'm sure your childhood. Any money I could get my filthy hands on was to buy the next game that I could. I remember renting Blades of Steel every week from a local video game store so many times I probably could have just bought it straight up. The greatest gift that you could possibly receive in those days was a new game. Super Nintendo would take that to the next level in 1990, but until then, the NES was the king of the universe until it officially stopped production on August 14th, 1995. 
Besides giving us so many of our childhood memories and thrills, the original NES launched some massive video game franchises and set the standard for the development of modern video games. Among some titles it gave us were Super Mario Bros., The Legend of Zelda, and Final Fantasy, among many others. When I got my NES on Christmas morning, it blew my mind like nothing else had done before. And that's why the NES is a definitive part of everything 80s. Thanks so much for listening. If this is your first time checking us out and you like what you heard, please jump in the DeLorean and go back. There's tons of other great episodes for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And if you're in a position to do so, you can consider sponsoring the show over at patreon.com, where you can get access to bonus audio content. But you can learn more by going to www.patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80S. Or wherever you're listening to this on, there should be a link in the show notes that'll take you right there. Everything 80s is written and produced by me, Jamie Logie, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio design and production by Rob Johnson. Until next time, I'm Jamie, and this is Everything 80s.